episode 240, bonus edition, interview with Craig Randall. Welcome to the Always a Lesson summer interview series. I've asked some very special guests to bring their wisdom to you all throughout May, June, July, and August. Connecting you with other elite educators is one of my favorite parts of this job as a teacher leader and podcaster. The insight that you are going to gain from these conversations is going to prepare you to hit the ground running during the back-to-school season, but more importantly, it is going to reignite your passion and your potential as an educator. Are you ready to level up what you bring to the table and how you serve those you lead? Then buckle up and let's go. Educators, is your passion tank running on empty? Look no further. Gretchen of Always a Lesson has a double dose of just what you need. Come fill yourself up with an empowering educator's podcast to start your day feeling empowered. It's Gretchen here from Always a Lesson. I am here to empower you. I want you to reach your potential. And that is exactly why I call you elite because that describes someone who takes the time to invest in themselves. Listening to a podcast like this is just one way to hone your craft. So I thank you. But I'm really excited because today we have a guest appearance that is going to help you reach your potential, continue to empower you, and make sure you remain elite. His name is Craig Randall. He is the author of an amazing book that I wish I could have handed to so many principals in my time that would have helped me grow into a better educator. So before I let you hear our conversation, I do want to share with you a little bit more about him. So Craig is the author of Trust-Based Observations. His experience as a counselor, a coach, teacher, and principal at schools in the U.S. and overseas led him to develop and then write Trust-Based Observations, which is a model of observation and evaluation focused on building trusting relationships that spark teacher risk-taking and innovation that then result in teaching and learning growth. And if you know me, I'm all about that teacher proficiency and student achievement. Currently, though, Craig consults and he trains schools on this model. It is so fascinating. We found each other, thank goodness, to social media, and he sent me his book, and I couldn't put it down. I've got post-it notes everywhere. Everything is highlighted, and I am just in love with the whole premise of the book. So let's dive right into the conversation. Hey, Craig, thanks so much for being a guest here on the Empowering Educators podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me on, Gretchen. I'm really excited to talk today. Well, good. We have had a chance to kind of collaborate a little bit throughout. Oh, it's been a few months now and, and chatting about how we can both work together to give back to the educational field. And I love a book and we're going to be talking about it that you have written. Um, but before we even get there, I kind of want to set the stage to how you've gotten there. So I'm going to dive in and just ask you to kind of share how we found each other and back us up into what got you into education. Sure. Uh, Somewhere over the summer, I found your podcast. I don't remember how and started listening. And then I knew my book was coming out in September. And I think I reached out to you at the end of August and uh, and sort of just pitched myself as a guest to be on your uh, podcast. (laughs) And as listeners will see, your book is perfect for them and, and their beliefs about growth and definitely aligns with my beliefs of how to better support teachers. Um, So we're going to tease that and talk about it a little bit later in the show. But where did you start on your educational journey? Where has it taken you before you even developed the idea of the book? Sure. I've had a pretty eclectic career. I actually started out as an elementary counselor for Mm -hmm. like seven years and then had a very interesting year where I was a middle school counselor but in uh, in a self-contained behavior classroom and literally 180 straight days I had to do physical restraint and which if you can imagine such a thing it was a different time for sure but it was still pretty crazy and then but as we often do as as teachers especially at the secondary level though I was mostly elementary I coached and I coached basketball and I had a chance to become a 
small college basketball coach and assistant coach. And so I took a major education detour and coached and taught uh, seven years at small colleges. And then my wife and I had always had this dream of working at international schools. And we were hitting 40 and we thought, wow, if we don't go now, we'll never go. Which is sort of funny to me now. And so then we took another major detour and we ended up in Warsaw, Poland. And I started teaching there. And then while we were there in the summers, I got my admin credentials and then became an assistant principal in an international school in Korea. And then just kind of worked my way back around. And then we came home a couple of years ago and I wrote a book. Holy cow. <laughs> I love that you condensed that all, but that is so much. And what's fascinating to me is not only were the different roles that you played in education, but the locations. I mean, you're an international yeah. educator. And, and what was that like to adapt to different cultures and educational systems as well as our own? I would say educationally system-wise, we didn't really have to adapt because they were really American-style mm. uh, classes. So that was pretty much the same. I mean, there were certainly differences. And the student body was very international. Uh, one school, like, had up to 90, but generally, like, 25 to 50 nationalities of students was the wow. norm. So definitely, <laughs> I know, there were definitely some cultural um things in each country that you had to adapt to but it's just I mean it's in a way it's just like different students but maybe just on a more broad level you have to deal with that and then definitely in each country there's exciting things about it and then there's hard things I remember in Poland I used to I thought my Polish was pretty good and I'd go to the Polish uh, deli and order my meats and cheeses and every time I'd come the lady at the behind the counter would roll her eyes like oh here's this dumb American <laughs> practicing his bad Polish on me and, and uh but but it's really, you know what, your day-to-day -day life, except for some of those things just being a little more challenging, it's really just the same as here. I just say maybe you have a chance to have more ex exotic vacations that are closer to you, so more accessible. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, thinking about all the different roles that you've played, different hats you've worn, what's the best lesson you've really learned in being an educator? You know, I... I your questions are so good, and, and I've really been thinking about that one a lot. And I think it's really when I first became an assistant principal because I – and I know the mentor question will come up later, so I won't dig into that. Okay. But uh, but the practice I had from that, I felt really, really prepared to do observations right off the bat. And so as I was doing it, and it really – and I know we'll probably talk more about this later, but it really flips the script. And so for the reflective – the observations are just 20 minutes, and but you're constantly cycling through like 12 teachers a week. And the reflective conversations are the next day, but instead of my telling teachers about what they're doing – it was changed. So immediately, uh, the first things I would do was say, what were you doing to help students learn? Mm -hmm. And if you had it to do over again, what might you do differently? And so the responses from that were just amazing because teachers immediately, teachers that have been teaching for 20 some years even, were saying, oh my gosh, it's the first time anyone's ever asked me yes. about my teaching and yes. what I thought. And so instantly I knew there was something there. And then the second part with this was that I... I would wait to offer suggestions. And part of it was being the new guy and wanting to be liked, truth be told. And part of it was I just felt like it was really arrogant of me to start offering suggestions when I've only seen them one, two, or three times. Mm -hmm. And then the inter most interesting thing happened is because of that, all of a sudden, teachers would start saying, okay, 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 but what can I get better at? So because I hadn't said anything, mm -hmm. really what ended up happening was by my asking them about their teaching instead of my telling them about it and by my just so really what we would do instead of telling them things is I would just point out their strengths so by doing those two things what I realized later I can't say I realized it right then was I was building differentiated trusting relationships with each teacher mm -hmm. and so then I remember even the very first year I had a teacher and this is the power of it to me I had a teacher who was like okay Craig but what can I get better at and so she was a math teacher her content knowledge was amazing her relationships were fantastic. She was a stereotypical math teacher, though, who would do the problem on the board, mm -hmm. ask one <laughs> or two kids, move on to the next problem, and then the last 10 minutes they'd work on it and then do the rest at home. And so we had another teacher in the building who was doing a flipped classroom model with his science class, and I suggested to her 
that maybe she could try that. And they'd already talked to the science teacher ahead of time to make sure he was willing to work with her, and he was. And so she immediately started uh, screencasting, recording all her lectures. And then at the same time, we'd been doing some Kagan cooperative learning structures. Mm -hmm. And then in the class, the kids were doing all their problems solving together, helping each other out with this. And it was this amazing, amazing transformation. And I think all that just my first year, and I, I never knew even at that point that, I, that it was like going to lead to a book, but I knew that what I was doing worked on a level very different than what I'd had as, as a teacher receiving observations. And so I think in hindsight, that's maybe the most amazing thing that I learned because that started the road toward what eventually became trust-based observations. Yeah, the reflection piece and the fact that you put the ownership on the teacher, but it also encourages them to dream bigger for themselves. When you're asking their opinion of their own teaching, they, now they feel in control. That means they're much more willing to try and to take risks, which I know you talk a lot about. And I just think that's missing from... Like you were saying, it's kind of arrogant to come in a classroom and just tell a teacher when they have no clue about the relationships, the dynamics, the abilities of the oh. students, and so on and so forth. So for you to say that was the most eye-opening and is the missing piece, I 100% agree with you. And I know you've had a chance to just really see a lot of teachers in action. And I know you were mentioning different strategies that you had seen in a successful teacher's classroom, but is there a characteristic that you would say stands out about teachers who we would define as great? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's, I mean, one, I, I'm not sure I could do, but I think I can take one, you have to have a heart for kids. You have to go into teaching and, and, and hold on to that because some teachers will lose it, like with a huge desire to make a difference in the lives of young people. So that's, that's thing one. But I think too, like I was even talking about differentiated trusting relationships, but I think like the teachers that I've seen are that, that are the most amazing teachers, they have a, a common trait of relentlessness mm. and that, and it's a differentiated relentlessness relentlessness that's a tough word <laughs> for for like each student like to reach the highest level that, that student can and it could mean something much higher or lower for each different student depending on where they are and but when you're relentless and you get to know each student you do not give up you set a bar that this is nothing other than reaching my bar and the bar can be different for each kid can be there so i think that's there and then i think you and i both kind of already touched on it today is that that natural sort of reflective growth mindset yeah. that those teachers that are always i mean the best teachers are always they've already thought about what 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 went well and what they could have done differently and those teachers are the ones like all three of those combined the, i mean that's a recipe for success no yeah. matter what I agree. And I want you to kind of hone in on a specific type of teacher for a second, kind of give your best piece of advice. And I know we've been giving little uh, pieces of advice along the way, but we've got new teachers that are listening. We also have folks that are transitioning into different roles or maybe in distress, not only what's happening with COVID-19 and all the unrest in the world, but maybe they're going to lose their job or what have you. Um, but we also have teacher leaders. So if you were to pick one of those types of teachers, to just speak something to some very specific advice to what they might be facing or something that would be encouraging, who would you pick and what would you say to them? One, those are all great potential areas to choose. But I think I have to go with the teacher leaders because oftentimes they'll be moving into potentially into principal and school-wide leadership mm -hmm. roles. And, and clearly you can tell I have a passion for that area. Yeah. So I think for those kind of teachers, I, th I think there's a few things. Is that one never forget how challenging being a teacher is never forget the feeling of vulnerability it is to have someone come into your classroom and observe you doing your practice whether you know it's coming or whether you don't know it's coming and maintain empathy forever for the forever challenge of being a teacher when you're working in an environment with 25 minds that are developing you never know what's going to happen day to day and you have to respond like on the fly so much to what happens. So I think having that empathy for for that and remembering that, I think that's one key piece uh, to being successful. I think along with that, as you move into teacher leadership, sometimes there can be a tendency to think that my way is the way. And I think that we have to remember that there's 
a million different ways that someone can be an excellent teacher or a very good teacher or a good teacher. And my way doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way or the only way. And so just being open to all kinds of different ways to be successful. And then I think the last thing is really, I think that just we have to, it's maybe something they haven't thought about, but like what my experience is on the receiving end of observations and evaluations in the past doesn't have to be what I make my move into leadership with my teachers that I'm working with. I think we can work more on making it about trust and about relationships than than maybe what they've experienced. Mm. I think that's very valid. And um, we've been able to give a lot of wisdom to people that you're impacting, but is there someone that impacts you, someone that mentors you, especially as you were designing this new way of looking at teacher growth and support? When I when I started my principal certification program, I, I remember feeling even at the, at the beginning of that or before that, even with the very best principles, just the model of observation, just something about it seemed wrong. It just seemed like there were too many areas to go over, too many check marks, um, too many areas that I'm supposed to work on at once. The visits felt too infrequent. And I remember talking to people about it along the way, and they would say, well, yeah, 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 but that's that's the system. That's what mm-hmm. it was. And, and when I started my program, uh, I met my mentor. You know, like a lot of te- people that go into teaching, I think, meet that mentor teacher when they were a kid. And I never had that, but I had it here. And I remember in the first class I had with him was supervision. And instantly he started talking about you have to be in teachers' classes every day. You have to be supporting them. You have to be giving them positive feedback. You have to be noticing their strengths. You have to be helping them grow. And so in that model, we started like instantly hearing him say that, I'll just say, was like, hallelujah. And I yeah. remember instantly, like every day you have to be in classes. And like, that was so new to me hearing that. And I remember asking him like, okay, okay, but what, how much, how much? And he was like, it's an hour a day, like 20 minute observations, an hour a day. And and so then we would go and we would actually practice doing observations. We'd have to bring little 10 minute mini lessons and we would observe. And then we'd immediately do a reflective conversation. And they were led by the same two questions that lead trust-based observations today. And those were, what were you doing to help uh, students learn? And if you had it to do over again, what, if anything, might you do differently? And so just doing that over and over with him, it just like it just opened my eyes to a whole new way of observation. And so his name's Warren Aller. He's, he's at Western Washington University in Bellingham. And like, we're still friends and we talk regularly. And even now when I have a question about something or with trust-based observations and the rollout of it and realizing maybe the enormity of trying to change the model from Danielson and Marzano mm-hmm. to like, it, you know, and then we've got state legislatures that we're trying to you know, we'd have to overcome to make this become an, a, the new way of doing it. And, and he just, he's, he's always so calming. Cause I, I'm really impatient and, and, <laughs> and he's just like, okay, but let's just think about like, let's see if we can find a district. What's the right district that we could find And We're still working on it because we want to make sure it's diverse, but not too big and what to pilot. And he's like, but even our measurements, Craig, I like, the, you know, the math and the literacy, that's fine, but that's not everything. I think we have to be finding ways to like measure and assess culture as part of whatever kind of study that we're going to do for this. And so like, even now he's just there and, mm-hmm. and he just, it's just so nice to know I can pick up the phone and call him and, uh, and get his advice. You know what I noticed about what you're saying, what you pick out as a great teacher of being someone that can reflect and a mentor that's able to ask questions, he does that for you. He has yet to really tell you what to do, but through the way he asks you to think about it, kind of guides you in a better direction to, to broaden your perspective. You know, I'd never thought about that, Gretchen, but that is that is spot on. Yeah, yeah you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds pretty amazing. And oh, I love the guy. You know, besides that one mentor, which you're so lucky to have, is there a place you go to stay current on what is going on in education, even though you're wanting to shake things up a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I, I definitely listen to podcasts. Um, I think as a principal, you know, one of the most amazing things to me about trust-based observations that I didn't anticipate was that when you're in classes as frequently as you are, you really discover who's really great at what. And there are even in the 
the system today of observation that's not the best for creativity and innovation and risk-taking, you'll still see teachers that are doing that. So over my career as a principal, definitely just by being in classes so much, I would discover so much mm-hmm. about like great areas of teaching that I didn't know about that we could then find ways to share with other people. Um, so that has definitely been another way. And even now that I've started to get into schools just a little bit, like I'm still having a chance to do that. And even talking to other principals now through that, you're still, you just, it's constantly working your mind and maybe they'll bring up a book. And so then like, oh, that's a new one that you can look at. So I think those are the main ways. And you know, sometimes you just, get a bug and then you just go on the internet and search something out and then go buy the book or whatever too. (laughs) I agree. And I'm glad you mentioned getting out and seeing what's happening live in classrooms with students, because as a teacher, when I was learning to lead, one thing I realized was, wow, I'm becoming a better teacher because I'm getting out and seeing great teaching in action. Why am I waiting now, years later, when I could have been doing this and getting better, faster, and more effectively? That's We call them learning walks to just go yep. watch your peers teach. And I am in love with that process. I wish it was required in every yeah. school and every district. And I thought, wow. People who are right down the hall from me are doing something really great. And each teacher kind of has their own thing. And if you can pull from each person, how amazing would our school be? You're so spot on. And I think, I mean, there's there's like these autonomous little bubbles, right? And so sometimes... You know, if we're not in the right setting, we don't have the opportunity to know what what amazing is happening in all these different classrooms. And if we can find a way to find out what everyone is doing in all these different classrooms, we all grow and we all get better. And then the students all benefit because of it. You are exactly right. I want to take a second to just kind of share some either teacher or leadership story that and the reason I ask you this is I want a listener to be able to identify with it and say, okay, I can borrow this, I can try this, just like we were talking about with learning walks. So is there a moment either in your teaching or in your leading that you just felt was like a best all star moment that you want to pass along in hopes that you could replicate it in someone else's journey? Um, I it, I'm not sure I'd call it an all-star moment. I'd call it a moment of of near horrific failure that I <laughs> saved myself be- before it became uh, irreparable. And then the, the lessons I learned from it were so valuable. You have so, me hooked. What is it? <laughs> okay. So this is my first year actually as a full principal, not an assistant principal. And look, like everyone, I have my ideas about what good teaching is and, and, and I, they were probably even stricter then. And one of the things that like is a, just, uh, what just drives me crazy is uh, it's a pet peeve, I guess it's rows. Like, you know what I mean? Classes with rows. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so it just, it drives me crazy. And I, I'm such a collaborative learning guy that the rows are just like cringy mm-hmm. to me. And so there was a teacher and he'd been teaching for 20 some years at, at the school. And this is my first year as a principal. And so he had the kids in rows and he seemed pretty strict and he was lecturing and I mean, it was fine, but it was just a classic to me, traditional classroom. And so, you know, going through the whole normal trust-based observation process with everything that's involved, I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And then I was about ready to go and, and have a conversation with him about like finding ways to do some more progressive things. And something though, something in my gut just said, just wait. And Hey y'all, popping in here real quick to remind you, if you are loving the podcast, hop on over to iTunes to leave a star rating and type in a few words for the review. This helps other educators find the show so they too can be empowered. Lots of love and thanks. Now back to the show. And luckily I did what my gut told me. And in the interim, because I was new to the school, I started looking at the IB scores from the year before, and he was an IB biology teacher. And as I looked, I found out that he, year in and year out, scored over one and a quarter points above world average Whoa. on his IB scores, which is, I mean, that's a, that's ridiculously high Stellar, and amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I thought, oh, wow, I think I need to go back and look at this guy again. And so hopefully from with a different lens. And so as I did, I began to see that his strict was really relentlessness. And he would not let kids slack off. He had a high bar. He actually, all the IB, you know, those are two-year courses. And the goals 
for either that course objectives or he made each kid have a paper copy of it. Every time they were dis- to discuss a new objective, he would make those kids uh, get out uh, their paper copy. He would make them write the date that they were doing that. So then they could go back and refer to their notes later. And then he just, he had this dry sense of humor, which at first seemed like it wasn't okay, but then you saw the kids loved it. Like he would joke with them about like, what are you going to go to foosball university if you don't work hard? <laughs> and it sounded silly, but the kids liked it. And like he hated clocks. So he kept his clock in his room, but with the battery out. So the time didn't go. <laughs> and then as I realized, look, it's an IB course and there is new material and the way he was doing it considering that it's also a lab class and they're spending a huge amount of the time in the back of the room doing labs made me realize that that was okay. And then I realized, okay, there's things that he has here that can other two other teachers can learn from. And so then in my reflective conversation, I asked him if he'd be willing to talk to other teachers about it. And he said, I, I'm a dinosaur. What am I going to tell these young <laughs> teachers? And I persisted and persisted and persisted, and it took me six months. But at the beginning of the next year, he put on a professional development session for the whole uh, secondary school, and he titled it Jurassic 101, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> that is, yeah. And he basically just outlined a lot of the things that I just talked about and a few more. And then as faculty of about 45, between the both of us afterwards, six of the younger teachers came up to us and said, thank you so much. I feel like now I have permission to to be more demanding of my kids. And mm-hmm. just think if I had gone with my, my, my very strict mindset of what a great teacher is at the beginning right. and told him like this, like, would he, would he have laughed? Would other teachers who know how good his scores were have lost respect for me? I mean, who knows what would have happened, but because of that, one, I learned to expand my own mind about what great teaching can be, mm-hmm. and I just think, and then the other thing I'll say that I learned was like to trust your gut, like if something told me to wait, and so I guess that's my story of success that really stands out to me, even though it started out as a story of near disastrous <laughs> failure. But again, you've learned so much and the nuggets you're passing along are there is talent within the building, but you have to be willing to look at it from a different perspective. And when you put down your your rubric, your boundaries uh, of what a good teacher is or what you're expecting to see, a.k.a. not Rose, (laughs) you were really filtering through, is this person going to be successful? And when you looked at the data and saw, wait a minute, something is working here. What is it when it looks so different? from what the norm is or from what I think it should be. And then you empowered him to teach his peers, which creates another great relationship, which I know is all part of this whole process. So I think it was brilliantly done when you look at it from start to finish in terms of the lesson it taught, not just you as a leader, but the whole school. Yeah, brilliantly done by accident. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I did want to take time because I absolutely love your current project, which is a book called Trust Based Observations. And I am someone who loves supporting teachers, someone who really believes that coaching is missing from the way that we grow and develop our teachers. And Although this does have an evaluation component, the way it's done is much more coach-like that really encourages teachers to take risks and try new things and have someone there to brainstorm and the accountability, just everything about it. I just am super excited about it. So tell us uh, a little bit more about why you felt the need to actually put it pen to paper and tell us a little bit about what the process is. Sure. So I'll say... I. I mean, I never knew I was going to write a book. I never knew I was going to be a principal. And uh, gosh, at the the move the last school I was at overseas, I had the head of school said, Craig, I'd like you to share what you're doing with the other principals. And so that was the first sense of like, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. And so we would meet together on a weekly basis and and talk about trust-based observations and even continue to develop it together. And then the elementary principal, who's a friend of mine now, uh, said, Craig, you got to protect this. And I just said, what are you talking about? He goes like, no, this is really good stuff. You have to protect it. And that was the first time that maybe I started to think on a bigger scale than just the building I was working at. And Mm -hmm. so then I decided to uh, present somewhere and it went really well. Like they had to bring in 15 or 20 extra chairs. 
And Ooh. then I submitted an article to Learning Forward and they accepted it. And then we ended up coming back home. And one of the nice things about being overseas is you can save more money. And so we had enough money that I was able to uh, use, use our supplemental for money from that and then my wife's teacher money and live on that while I wrote the book. And so that's how it came to be. And, and so really, in a nutshell, it's about building trusting relationships, differentiated trusting relationships with each teacher so that they feel safe taking risks. And and going back a little bit, I mean, Danielson and Marzano, which are the two main, main evaluation systems today, the research actually says they're not improving teaching and learning. And the Gates Foundation did a seven year, 200 million dollar study called the measures of effective i was in that we did it at my school Uh okay yeah yeah so and so they did that and really the whole point of it was if we develop a more robust evaluation system then the thought is that we'll improve graduation rates the quality of teaching and student learning outcomes in seven years 200 million (laughs) dollars the final report comes out uh at the end of 2018 right while i'm writing the book and it says no real sustained improvement. And I mean, intuitively, I knew it. And and, and certainly everything's been well intended. Nobody does right. anything thinking it's not going to work or think bad things. But but it, it just spoke out loud what I knew to be true. And then around the same time, because I think this is when I was writing the article, or maybe a little bit before that, I'd come across this man named Matt O'Leary, who to me is the predominant researcher on observation and evaluation in the world. And he'd done all this qualitative research that found out that as soon as we start to evaluatively rate pedagogy, teachers stop taking risks and they tend to play it real safe in their practice. Mm -hmm. And so you see the problem right there. And so what at the same time I realized that I was doing was developing trusting relationships by asking teachers about their practice, seeing them frequently enough that I knew them and knew their practice, sharing their strengths, and then teachers were much more willing to take risks to grow, to grow their practice. And what I say now is that you know success is achieved as an observer when my teachers can know that I or any observer can come into the room, watch them try something new that completely bombs, yet feel totally confident that the next day during the reflective conversation, you're going to get a congratulatory fist bump for taking risks. Mm -hmm. And when we create those conditions, growth will follow. It's just if people persist in taking risks, improvement will happen. And the conditions right now do not allow that to happen. And trust-based observations really does. Yeah, what I like about it is it's a partnership. Right now, evaluations happen to us. This is a way that growth happens with us. We we are now partnering, like the principle you mentioned in the book. Principles have to create the conditions. But then on the other side of that, teachers have to embrace the opportunities. They have to be willing, like you said, to take a risk, even if it's going to flop. And because you've had that relationship and that safety you know, the risk really is is quite small. The reward is so, so much worth it. And the one part I just loved so much is when you were talking about if you have the working conditions figured out that leads to morale, that leads to relationships, meaning that if you really take this interest in teachers first, then that creates safety, which then creates trust, which then creates risk taking, and then that creates growth. And I'm like, yes, all the time we are saying build relationships, but no one ever really said, this is what it looks like. Take an interest and really create the conditions for all of that to happen. You know, and, and I'll just add to that. So you're right, because so often you read like, well, build trust, build relationships, but nobody really ever talks about the why or the how or like mm-hmm. observe classes frequently. Like, what does any of that mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think what trust-based observations does is it lays out a manageable, frequent series of observations that principals can do, assistant principals, whoever, instructional coaches. But not only that, everything we do is aimed to build trust. So when we have the reflective conversations, Like, I don't care whether you're 10 or whether you're 35, going to the principal's office feels like going to the principal's (laughs) office. And so 
we make sure that we have the reflective conversations in the teacher's room. It's their space, so they feel more comfortable. We, When we go in, we always say, hey, is now a good time? No one ever says no. And then we always make sure, like, th there's a power differential with our jobs. So if I sit across from you, that magnifies that power differential. So we sit beside you. Mm. And so as we're asking you those questions, it's on the reflective uh, uh, on the re observation reflection form, we're writing the answers, typing the answers out right there. So we're transparent with them as so they can see everything that's going on. So and then obviously we're practicing on our listening and we're being our most empathetic, kind selves, understanding just how vulnerable the process of being observed is. And when we do all that together, trust, like everything you just said, trust, safety, risk taking all follow. Yeah, it's a conversation rather than yeah. this is what you did. You're now ineffective. You land here on the rubric. And you were even mm -hmm. mentioning in the book that it is compliance. Teachers are like, whatever I'm yep. going to do, just whatever I have to. I don't care about growing because I, I don't want to go down a level. Like, forget that. Let's just play it safe and do what I can do. Um, and everything's happening to me. And, and it's someone else's opinion of me. And this is just so together. It's, it's truly, I just keep saying the word partnership, but again, with the bodies sitting next to one another and being transparent with what you're typing on the computer. And I loved when you were mentioning in the book that teachers were willing to keep showing up as their best because the consistency to which the principal came in, it wasn't just once a quarter. It was, okay, yep. I know they're going to come in, whether it's a predictable schedule or not. It's just, I know that this is going to keep happening. So I'm just going to keep doing my best stuff. And in doing that, they're already taking risks and they're already performing yep. better than they were before. So it's such a win-win. I can't imagine why someone would not want to do it. And I know you even in the book lay out questions or at least maybe something that holds principals back from like, what does this look like? Because I have all these other administrative duties. I can't be in classrooms every day. And you're like, no, 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 just trust. You got to build this new habit. It's just 20 minute observations. And if you do this on a Monday versus a Thursday and you've got it all figured out, I'm like, this is what they need. They need the roadmap, the proven system, the give it a try, give it a few months. Um, and so I'm really excited to hear from you, maybe some success stories or maybe even someone that struggled, but then found that it was really working. And I'll tell you, so, I mean, you know, the book just came out in September, and so we're just getting started with, with this whole process. So I was actually just talking to a teacher, a principal last week, and we're having another conversation tomorrow because she's got, she's in Colorado, and, and the state legislative and her district in Denver, the requirements they have, she's like, Craig, I, I, I mean, I'm so into this, but how do I do it when I have to do this? And so what she found, though, is if you look at the legislation carefully and then even look at the schools, oftentimes you can ask to be an innovative school. And so you can get there are workarounds where you can get permission to try something so you can try it new. So that's like those are ways that we can do that or I mean. You cannot rate pedagogy on every lesson. There's no way you can do that and be successful. But maybe I can just do it once at the end of the year if I have to, if I'm still required by law to do that. And so I actually was at a, a school in rural Mississippi in uh, in December, and it was so rural that I actually had to stay 40 minutes away because that was the closest Airbnb to where we were. <laughs> and so this teacher, this principal, she had she was starting her second year and in her first year she followed a principal that had been there for 26 years and had not done an observation and so she comes in all eager she'd actually gone to high school there and that was her principal when she'd gone to high school and she'd actually been a teacher there and but she'd gone away and then come back and so she comes back she's ready to do the right thing she's driven she's a type a personality and so she does the mississippi version of their evaluative rubric and she gets a teacher that she gives a three to, which by most standards would like be good, right? But the teacher comes in crying the next day saying she thought she deserved a four on this. And like it, it really, really seriously damaged the relationship between the principal and the teacher and affected her opportunities for growth. And so then she sought me out and even at the beginning of the week of training, she had like, but what about this? What about this? And we just, it's playing the long game of trust. It's like, what difference does it make if we start six months from now instead of three months from now on offering a suggestion? It, it, we're still going to get there. And if they're going to go willingly or embracing it now versus like just compliance, then which way is going to be more successful? And so part of the training is we're, we're in classes doing the observations and reflective conversations all week long. 
And by Wednesday, because you know how word spreads with teachers, right? <laughs> They're always talking about everything that's going on. Teachers are emailing her saying, can you observe me? Can you observe me? And so like that's just three days of training and teachers sharing their new experience versus like traditional experiences. And all of a sudden they're asking to be trained. I mean, to be observed. I mean, it, it's so that like that's so exciting to me to hear that already. Yeah, my uh, father-in-law was a principal of a high school. And when I was first dating my husband, we went to meet his family. And he's like, oh, i got to see my dad. He's still at work. I'm like, wow, he's working late. And he goes, well, he pretty much kind of lives here because he coaches. And um, his whole philosophy is that he has to be in classrooms. Like when students are there and teachers are in the building, then he's in classrooms. And so all his other duties happen after school once everyone's out. And I thought... Wow, I've never heard anyone say that. And he he said, yeah, that's his secret to success. And this high school had just gone on to do amazingly, not just in test scores, but just the students that were created because of that environment. And when I finally met his dad, I could just feel the love. Everyone from the custodian to the stellar teacher, how they felt about him. And I was trying to say, okay, well, what is it? Is he just really gregarious? Is he funny? Is he just really? encouraging and it all comes back to FaceTime he was in classrooms every day watching what's working he knew his teachers like as we were walking down the hall he'd say oh this is so-and-so she's really great at this and this is so-and-so he's really amazing at this and I'm like if only every principal could so know their staff and everyone that's involved in that school family could love their leader like that that transforms people not just academically but to go out into society and use their gifts in the best way possible. And so I 100% see him as someone that could totally adapt to this type of observation. And I think it means creating a culture of trust is really what it's doing, and it's pervasive everywhere. And so I think as a principal, you were talking about how beloved he was. And so, I mean, I think for principals, it's such a tough job and just like teaching such a tough job. But then when you start to get those successes and you start to get teachers, you you'd be it sounds so silly, but you do become beloved when you when you start to work in this trust based observations model. And boy, if you want incentive to keep like, I don't have time to do it. You really do, because it's not costing you any more time than rating teachers and all these different things. And all the time I have to do with the pre-conference and the observation and not. But for the same time, now I'm, I'm feeling it. And then when you see that teacher, like I was talking about that teacher that made that first change to the flipped, and you see that dramatic transformation, wow. I mean, it's just so easy to keep doing it after you've experienced that. Well, and it's all about what you prioritize. I mean, everyone will yes. say, I just don't have enough time to exercise, Mm-mm. to eat right, whatever, to catch up with an old friend. You do have the time. You just don't prioritize that thing. And when we talk about teacher growth being the most essential component here, then being in classrooms has got to be the only priority in order for that to happen. I mean, that's our number one job is improving teaching and learning as a teacher or as a principal. So if that's my number one job, there are ways that I can use my office manager, administrative assistant to offload things that I'm doing that I don't need to be doing. There are ways that I can free up time to prioritize it. I mean, in the model, we're doing 12 visits a week. So that's when you time it out to the reflective conversations and that that's eight hours. And so maybe there's a little prep. So we'll say eight and a half hours. That is not that much time and the results you really do see growth you really do see improvement yeah and i would say you know let's bridge the gap here so if a teacher is listening and they're like yes amen all the praise hands but how do i get my administrator to adopt this or try this what can we say to encourage them to make this a reality (laughs) you could just secretly put a book on their desk (laughs) um it's a good question and i think look I'd be lying if I said I know there aren't there are definitely schools out there where that's not going to be the reality in that school. So I, I don't want every single teacher to think that they can make a difference to that principal because that's not the case with everyone. But I think most people are just doing what was thrown out in front of them. And so maybe they can tell their principal that they heard a po- I mean that they heard this podcast and it sounded really cool and would they like the link to it. And and so or maybe really do tell them about the book and and maybe don't buy it for them, but maybe if they want to. But and so 
maybe that's a good way, just starting them out by listening to Gretchen's podcast. Yeah. And, and I think you can pull out why does this sound interesting to you as a teacher? Because if you just say, like, here's yeah. this cool thing I heard, but if it's here's mm -hmm. how I think I could become a better teacher, now your leader's listening because they want to help you do that, but it also benefits them at the same time. So they're going to be yeah. like, well, what's this secret thing? Like, tell me more. And if you can cite specific things that you've heard in this conversation about, oh, you know, when we sit together and talk about how I did an observation, could you sit next to me or could you pop in for yep. 20 minutes? Yep. Or when you're in there, could you tell me something that I did greater? Could you ask me mm -hmm. more questions? You know, giving them some prompts and then they might say, Oh, like where, where's all this coming from? And you might yeah. say, Hey, I heard about this new way of doing observations. Are you interested in learning more? And then they could maybe potentially read it or maybe say, Hey, can we try it in this grade level or with these specific classes or Hey, can we just do it full throttle? You know, you never know. <laughs> yeah. You answered that question way better than I did. <laughs> I'm a logistical minded person thinking, okay, if I had to get, because I had some tough principals who were just, yeah. I mean, they couldn't have helped me grown if I paid them. And I just yeah. really wished I could have slid this on their desk. And so I was thinking, yeah. okay, what would the old me have to do here? What does this look like? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to be respectful of your time. So before I let you go, I want to ask you one more question. And that is, how do you reignite your passion and your potential as an educator? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really good question. And, and as passionate as I think it comes through that I clearly am about trust-based observations, it's I have moments of doubt and I have moments of frustration and, and moments of of like that it's embedded in legislation that you have to do these things this way, or that, that Marzano and Danison are so deeply embedded in our, in our system right now. And, and, and so I definitely, and, and combine that with my being incredibly patient when everything changed <laughs> yesterday. And so I definitely have moments when I get down. And, and so I think it's a, for me, it's a combination of a few things is, is one is like, I am on a mission to change the world of teacher observation because in my heart, I absolutely definitively know it makes a difference. So mm -hmm. I think for all of us, it's like, what's my mission? What's, you know, the why is the popular lingo for the same thing nowadays. And, right. and but I think that that's really important to know what that is. And then I, I also think that just when we know our why, it's just like I, I'm persisting. I'm going to persist. If this doesn't become the new way, it won't be because I didn't do every single thing in my power to make it the new way. And so like persistence is really, really key. And I'll just say that I think sometimes, you know, kismet, luck, intervention, I don't know what you want to call it or just whatever it is, but it seems like almost inevitably every time I got one of those down moments and they're more than I wish they were or frust moments of frustration. It seems like the next day, like I'll get an email from Gretchen saying, yeah, Craig, I'd like to have you on my podcast. Or I get a, you know, something, it just seems like there's something positive that happens to like reinvigorate me, even though I know I'll persist anyway, mm -hmm. but those sure help when you get those little bonuses at the same time. Yeah, I think follow, and we were talking, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the conversation of follow your gut. Like what makes you light up yeah. and this is your yeah. thing. Yeah. And when you can get back to the heart of that, that's where that passion starts to grow again. Yeah. And, and, and just, and sometimes, I mean, with the way the system is now, and like you were talking about some of those difficult principles, wow, sometimes we can, we can temporarily lose that what, like, remember, forget why I got the teaching in the first place. And, and it's so tough when that's the situation. And sometimes maybe that means to make a change and find a new building where I don't have that leader, if that's possible, too, so I can get into a better space where, where I can refine that why I want to do what I'm doing. Or get to the place where the conditions are right for growth. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 whatever that means. Well, on behalf of educators who are dying to grow their craft, I just really thank you for taking time not only to write the book, but to come on here, share a little bit about it. Tell us how can we connect with you if we've got questions or we just want to learn more. Sure. 
I mean, I'm on Twitter and it's at Trustbase Craig and, and I'm on LinkedIn is Craig Randall. But I think the two best ways to get a hold of me are the website, trustbased.com, which is easy to remember. And then anybody can email me, Craig at trustbased.com, and I will chat with anybody who has an interest in this at all. That sounds great. I'll link everything up in the show notes. I have highlighted, I've got post-it notes. I just, I, I love your work and I thank you so very much. Gretchen, thank you so much. I'm really thankful for the opportunity to chat with you because I know you're doing really good stuff too. And so I'm honored that you've given me a chance to let my voice be heard with all your listeners. Absolutely. Thank you again. Take care. Wow, y'all, can we just give an amen to Sir Craig? I mean, he is the one that could absolutely change the trajectory of teacher growth around the nation. I just am so excited for what is to come, the potential here, because all of the things I have ever thought or ever felt, it is because of this. The way that we are held accountable is really actually a disservice. And he just eloquently created this system and shares his passion with educators. And the ones that are giving it a try are seeing the success. And I'm just like so thankful finally that there's someone who gets it, who has found what's been missing. And he's been able to create a place where we can look at things from a new lens, a new perspective, and try it on for size, although we might have to tweak it for our, our building and our culture and stuff. But trust-based observations is a game changer. And I can only beg you <laughs> to ask your administrator to give it a shot because I so badly, so badly wished I had this opportunity in the classroom to have someone hold me accountable, yet support me in such a loving, yet pushy out of the nest kind of way. And it really would have done wonders for not only me and my growth, but the students that I was impacting and my colleagues that I would have conversations with. So um, I highly suggest, obviously, the book. Please go to the show notes to get all the links for that. But even just listening to this episode and sharing it with your admin or having conversations with your colleagues about how you could get something like this started or piloted in just a few classrooms or grade levels and really see how the culture of your building changes and how you're going to retain some really amazing teachers because they're going to feel so motivated and heard and supported to do what they love to do already. So I'll get off my soapbox, but I just absolutely love this topic and I'm so thankful for Craig to come on, share his gift with us. All right, Elite Educators, that is a wrap for this week's special edition interview podcast with Craig Randall. Now go out and be great because you've just been empowered. <laughs>